This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Welcome to today's edition of the Westwards podcast, but it's not just a podcast, we have actual people on our screen. So I'm just going to jump straight into it and say we are talking today to the three successful uh, poets from the most recent iteration of the Blake Poetry Prize. So we have the winner from this year, Simone King. Uh, hello, Simone. Give us a wave so we know who we're talking about. <laughs> okay, Simone. And we have Kirsten Krauth, who is uh, down on the bottom right-hand corner of the screen as you look at it, and Gershon Meller at the top. So how are we, folks? Are we well? Oh, yeah. Very well. Very well. So congratulations, to <laughs> congratulations to each of you. I am currently um, sitting uh, in the Westwards office in Parramatta, which is on Darug country. Would you like to each let us know which part of the country you're hailing from. Yeah, I'm from Castlemaine, and that's Jaja Warung country, but I'm in uh, North Coburg at the moment. Okay. Simone, whereabouts are you hailing from? I'm also um, on Wondery country in Coburg North as well right. at the moment. All right. And yeah. No, I'm in, on the Yarra in Abbotsford. Okay, cool. And look, I, I think... I think it's important that we sort of acknowledge uh, this side of our our history, not least of all because spirituality is part of what the Blake Prize is about, but also the idea of storytelling is very much what we're what we're talking about. And so, the for anyone who is uninitiated, I'm going to actually just read you what the Blake Prize is. The Blake Poetry Prize challenges contemporary poets of disparate styles to explore the spiritual and religious in a new work of 100 lines or less. And it's delivered in collaboration with Western Sydney Literary Organisation Westwards, that's us, and Casula Powerhouse Arts Centre. And the judges this time, which was the 67th uh, running of the Blake Poetry Prize, were Anthony Lawrence, who's a pretty heavy hitter in the poetry world, uh, Juan Garrido Salgado, who is a Chilean-Australian poet, who came to Australia in 1990, and last year's Blake Poetry Prize winner, Judith Nangala Crispin. And we had over 500 entries came in from across Australia and all around the world. And uh, the people that we are talking to today are the winner, in the case of Simone, and the two highly commended poets. So congratulations to all of you. So let's just jump in and ask you this question. What is spirituality? Because I'm, I'm a card-carrying atheist myself. And I, my, my sort of straight-up answer would be, well, isn't spirituality just a name for something that is hard to define in any other way. I'll, I'll ask Simone first. What do you think? Where, and if you want to, in, as we talk about this, share where you sit in this kind of, um, it's not even a spectrum, it's really just a three-dimensional space of belief and spirituality. Are you happy to share where you sit in that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I define myself as an agnostic. Um, I, I'm not sort of aligned with any formal religion, um, but I'm definitely open um, to there being something else. And um, I consider myself a quite a spiritual person without, you know, without being religious. So my concept of spirituality is much broader than religion. I think spirituality extends to um, being in relationship with, with the other. So whether that be other people, the earth, um, other animals, uh, so having compassion, and um, empathy um, and it's also about sort of nurturing our inner lives and looking out from a narrow focus on the self or the ego um, and and you know recognizing the interconnectivity of of all things and all people uh, so i have a pretty broad definition of spirituality and yeah i consider myself to be a spiritual person in the sense that um, i think um creating for example and particularly writing poetry is is a spiritual practice mm -hmm. um it's about finding relationships between different things and sometimes relationships that that people don't expect to exist um and i also meditate and and do other things that i, I consider to be spiritual practices spend a lot of time in the natural world 
yeah, could, that's where I almost, almost make the case that you're a pantheistic agnostic almost, really, couldn't you? Uh, yeah. Where, where you don't think a label needs to be applied? Probably don't. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily put that label, but uh, I think there's a, there's some truth in it. I see, I see the world around me as being sacred. Um, I actually grew up quite religious in the Christian tradition, mm -hmm. um, and I think a good way of summarising it is that I've moved away from an idea of a God above to an idea of the sacredness yeah, all around me, including in the natural world. Gershon, what about you? Um, I think spirituality is a very hard thing to define and um, it's a very personal thing. And I think uh, what um, Simone just said sums it up very well because um, she's speaking it from the point of view of personal experience. And so it makes sense because it's, it's, it has meaning for her. And I think, I think uh, it's more useful, I think, to talk about belief uh, because uh everybody believes in something if you didn't believe in something you wouldn't be here it's as necessary as breath whether you believe in your wife your child your partner you believe in love so all these things uh are somehow interconnected and we struggle to uh find a, a way to express them uh in contemporary life uh, because of the overriding shadow of uh, a sort of materialistic, I would say, outlook and so-called scientific outlook, which basically views the universe as a physical object, where actually the more we progress in physics, we're finding out that the universe might be conscious. So uh, we certainly know there's that big chunks of it but we just simply don't know what it is because they disappear into nothing called black, black holes and uh and that also happens at the quantum level as well so there's a nothing there which is non-physical because no physical theory can describe it that means there is another it's not a matter of debate it is that's how i look at the world degrees of, degrees of belief related to perception and that that translates into uh, some people don't even think about these concepts. They just are in the way they live. Do you think we need to be careful not to conflate the idea of belief and faith? Because I believe the plane is going to stay in the air when I fly because I understand something of the principles and I have a certain amount of trust in the engineers that created it. But I wouldn't say I have faith that the plane is going to fly in the same yes, but, faith that well, God. Yes, but you, uh, that's correct, James. Uh, but there's always an element of the unknown even in belief, because you, you, you have belief in the aeronautical engineer has done his job and the pilot's doing his job and you, there's an underlying yeah. faith in those things that you don't know, even though you could run off and do a, oh yes, I know that, because you can make a causal chain in your head. When, and, I, when I fly the first, when I fly <laughs> from Sydney to LA, now in 2022 whenever that might or whenever it might happen again that's very different from being in the first flight that flew from Sydney where it hadn't been done before so we there would have been a certain perhaps an element of doubt creeping in along with the belief right yes it is and that's the edge mm -hmm. what do you think kirsten what, what's your take on this um i don't really see myself as a religious person um I, my grandmother was in an evangelical church um, when I was growing up and I feel like I always, um, you know, from the moment, you know, I could speak, I was always questioning and, and challenging um, those beliefs. So, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm a religious person, but I think I am a spiritual person. I'm a bit reluctant to define myself because um, I feel like I'm, I'm very, you know, open to to new ideas and to exploring things um you know all the time i do know that i feel like one thing i do have faith in is art and i feel like a lot of my work is in response to art and i find it quite a um, transcendent thing so i'm enjoying your background um of jeffrey smart there <laughs> i'm just i can't stop looking at it um yeah, I think I think for me that's where my kind of any devotion kind of 
kind of leads and I feel like I've got um, a lot to learn, you know, from other artists and other writers and other poets. Um, and I also agree with Simone that for me, it's a broader thing about, you know, how you experience, you know, spiritualism could be how you experience nature and how you connect with, with the world in all its elements. And just mm. so you, you will have noticed, I've just put up the study from Jeffrey Smart's um, Kale, <laughs> Kale Expressway because uh, mm. have you seen any of his work in the flesh? Yes. See, I find that I, I'm, I'm reluctant to use the word transcendent because it ha does have a lot of kind of deepity connotations. But I did have that um, one of his Jeffrey Smart's images on my wall, uh, I think must have been when I was a teenager or you know when Peter Carey's book came out and it had one of his images on the cover? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's one of, one of his, one of his paintings, this is a bit of a sidebar, but one of his paintings which I have a print of on my wall, it's a whole bunch of garage doors and there's a particular, um, there's a railing that goes to one of the, beside one of the doors, but the centre of, the centre of um, the vanishing point isn't in the middle of the painting, it's off to the left and it's just an implied vanishing point and I like to say to guests when they come to my house, have a look at this picture, stand up and have a real good look at it. And they always stand slightly to the left. They don't stand <laughs> in the middle of the painting. And that might sound irrelevant to what we're discussing, but maybe it isn't. Maybe this idea that um, that the inference that's created by things like poetry about spirituality, even if there's not an actual, well, isn't that poetry generally, that the inference that is made by what the poem says to you is as important as what the poet might have intended? Yeah, I think so, for sure. There's an element of subjectivity there where the reader is, is you know, having their own experience. Um, and I think it probably is as important as, as what was intended. I think as poets, we kind of have, we can intend something, um, but then when we put it out into the world, it's going to take a lot of different forms and interpretations. And, and that's one of the beauties of poetry, I think. Because Simone, it says in your your bio that you're a poet, a writer, and an editor. The easy response to that is, which one do you see yourself most most being, or is it really a matter of you have to tap into all of those in the process of creating what we term poetry? And of those three, I would say more, yeah, a poet. Um, I write other types of writing as well, but not as much as poetry. Um, I have edited one collection of poetry, which is why I put editor in the bio. But I mean, what I spend most of my time doing is actually none of those three. <laughs> it's um, it's mothering, being a parent, and also working in a completely different field altogether. Um, so, but yeah, out of the three, I identify as as being a poet. Because when we talk online. about talk about transcendence, there, there is a case to be made for. Um, poetry you know you have each written poems that are exploring this idea of spirituality and it's it's deliberately a very loose uh prompt if you like you know just write something about this topic which is you know by its very nature somewhat indefinable do you do each of you find that you use poetry to to explore that anyway even when it's not the actual intent of the competition that you're writing a poem for in fact, maybe you didn't even write the poem for this competition. I'd be keen to hear each of you speak to, to this idea that maybe poetry is something that you use to explore spirituality even when it's not on the menu. I only recently started writing poetry. Um, I've been writing for a long time as a, uh, a novelist, had two novels come out and, um, and as an arts journalist. So I've only really been writing poetry in the last couple of years, um, last two years mainly because of lockdown um it kind of changed my my focus a bit my practice and why why do you think why did you move towards poetry in the middle of lockdown rather than just take that opportunity to write that novel that you've you know we always talk about novels and go oh, i just haven't got time to get to it well you had time so why did you go to poetry instead of prose uh, i wouldn't say i had time <laughs> i think it was the opposite um because i was homeschooling two kids um i didn't have time and I didn't have any sustained time, which is what a novel needs. Yeah. Um, like it's immersive for a long time. So I think I started writing songs and poetry because it was like, you know, something I could grab onto when I, you know, at eight o'clock at night. 
Um, but my my poem was actually a was written before the competition. Mm. Um, I was approached by a photographer, Michael Wolf, and he'd taken photos of um, of uh, statues in cemeteries, and he knew that I was um, that I'd written about Nick Cave a lot. Um, I'd done a bit of a PhD around some of Nick Cave's stuff in it. And a bit I've, of a PhD, okay. Yeah, I've got Nick Cave as a character in my novel. <laughs> he thought, you know, that kind of sensibility would suit to write about his photographs. So I've got the one here that I was writing about um, for the, that was the um, Pencils from Heaven was a response. Mm. That photograph, if you can see it, it's basically a cherub um and it, it's very lifelike it looks like a toddler um yeah so I was writing just to um to respond to that and so the poem came out um uh very very quickly it was just a kind of a flow of consciousness thing as a response um and I did a whole suite of poems and they were all I think I probably could have entered any of them into the Blake because they were all looking at at those kinds of themes um, so it was very intensive. I wrote, I think I wrote 10 to 12 poems in um, three weeks. And he was just, I was just invited to just choose any of his photographs and, and respond immediately to them. Because your, your poem refers to heaven as being, well, it's basically Melbourne, isn't it? It's uh, the, the, the centre of Melbourne. Um, well, it's interesting because it, it can be read as as that, but it actually is literal. There was a there was a shop called Heaven in the middle of Melbourne. Okay. In ah, that's right. I remember that. It was there was one, <laughs> um, and so when I saw that image of the of the cherub, that the first thing that came into my mind was was the those um, pictures in the in the eighties when I was you know twelve that every girl used to like, which were just these really cutesy images. And I was always a little bit suspicious of them, um, but they were all for sale at this place called Heaven, along with um, along with uh, pencils <laughs> and all kinds of things. But it was just this real, um, real commercial, you know, commercialism of 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 um, you know spirituality. And uh, but I loved going there. Absolutely I, loved I, going I, there. I do remember that from when I was a young. <laughs> young boy growing up as a Seventh-day Adventist missionary kid that I remember my parents were always telling me that they, I had a I had a personal guardian angel making sure that I didn't get hit by a car when I crossed the street. And then one day I saw this saw this um, card or something and it had one of these sort of basically a baby with the baby with wings. And I thought, how's that kid going to know how to stop me getting hit by a car? He doesn't even know what cars are. Like it's, it's struck me as being rather <laughs> silly at the time. Anyway, would you, would you like to read the poem for us? I will. I will. So these were all, yeah, just thoughts that came, came, I guess, about partly about my experience of, of Melbourne. I was at boarding school in Geelong and I used to, even though I lived in Melbourne, but this was kind of my ritual when I came to Melbourne was to, you know, get the train, walk down Burke Street, walk to Burke Street Mall and go to heaven. So this is called Pencils from Heaven. When I was 13, I liked going to heaven. It was in the Burke Street Mall and had those kinds of pictures that 13 year old girls like. A couple kissing on a Parisian street. Two fat cherubs fondling cherry sweet. I'd catch the train from Pasco Vale to heaven, stopping to look at the patent leather, winkle pickers, Doc Martens, thigh highs, boots with silver buckles made me breathless. What did you do on the weekend? I went to heaven with my girlfriend, who'd sit on a cold step and smoke and look up into the clouds and think of angels grounded as I walked down Flinders, the blonde flick of faucets flares the billowing rush of Monroe's skirt, white wings and smoky gust of air. Heaven had Ken Doan postcards, rubbers on the end of pencils. We called them erasers, knowing smile. Bright and neon and hot pink blush. Or perhaps that was my girl and me dazzling in the newness of glitter ball smiles. Orbiting Venus turns of new, of new desires. We bought purple hairspray in heaven that gave us sweet valley girl highs, 
in aisles where the manager couldn't see us, stealing sticky kisses, hubba bubba bubbles, Lolita stockings with lace trimming thighs, undoing belts in city loop corners, hands burrowing in dark duffel pockets. The girl I kissed first lost me. The week after we went to heaven, she flew above the train's faster kitty cat, showing me tags, the ones up above, new graffiti, our hidden code. Every time I caught the broadie, letters on tall buildings and overpasses, bouncing off in spray paint to the sky. Like my girl was the first to touch heaven. A small plane continuing the cursive while the folks at home watched on, staring up at the sky and frowning as the trail of smoke turned listless. It's a beautiful poem. And, and what I what I really do like about it is it starts off in a very real place, if you like, you know, Burke Street Mall and, and shops and then starts to drift away into this rather more ethereal, uh, symbolic, I'm not using the right words here, but you know what I'm saying. It, it, it's a, it's a very, very good poem. So, um, and so you had this written and you saw the competition and went, this might work and hey, presto, it did. Yeah. Well, I, well, it never even, yeah, I never thought I would, you know, you know, be recommended or anything. <laughs> I just, I just had no idea, but I, I just thought that, um, yeah, it just seemed to really fit. It just seemed, I don't know when, when that poem came out, like when I when it sort of flew out of me yeah I just had that a real sense of being very satisfied by it like I just felt very connected to it and it was like that was my book that felt like totally my voice in that poem um and yeah so I was like I think um when I got the call I was like I think I put two poems in I was like oh which poem was it you know and when they said pencils for whom and I thought oh it just feels you know it fe just felt right that poem yeah Gershon, what about you? We um, we started off talking to Kirsten about. Uh, actually, I can't remember what my original question was before we got to the reading of the poem. Uh, well, how did we come to write the poem, and was it for the prize? Well, there you go. That works. Yeah, let's go with that. Yeah. So, uh, well, my I've started life as a surrealist and an imagist in my poetry because I've always been writing from the point of view of inner sense, and that came because of my early interest from about age 17 in yoga and meditation all that and uh and I, i've always been very interested in in that space there's the kind of edge of human experience uh when you're in a meditative or contemplative state but that can be anywhere as as kirsten has just said because what she's talking about is not the the shop heaven but the experience that the girls had inside the shop so it had nothing to do with the object it was their response that was approached something spiritual and uh, in terms of the effect. And I had a lot of trouble. Uh, a lot of my early work um, uh, was very surrealistic and uh, I was always looking for a frame to try and put this stuff in because when it came out, a lot of the time, extremist consciousness stuff doesn't work when you're trying to describe the world. You know, it's a very difficult thing to do. So uh, it's been a bit of a journey, really, because I've always been motivated to write, except when I'm traveling, not so much as a response to where I am, but what I'm thinking about. And I kind of see myself as someone trying to have a conversation with the universe, who, uh, uh, but is constantly trying, being interrupted with fireflies and I'm brushing them away. And sometimes they land on the page buzzing a light and, and they're the poems, the ones that almost survive. But that's how I kind of see my work. I'm kind of investigating another space, which is very difficult to translate. And I've spent most of my life trying to find conceptual framework to be able to do that and uh, haven't really found it until recently. And I, during the pandemic, I started, uh, this is a conversation about spiritual poetry, so uh, things. So I got very interested in Kant and, um, it's just not an easy thing to do. And uh, uh, there's been a lot of resurgence in Kant over the last couple of years. So he had, so he's got a very interesting framework called uh, Transcendental Philosophy. And uh, if you'll indulge me, I'll just, uh, 
the trans, tra transcendentalism is when you look from the point of view of what makes things possible. So here, Kant originally asked a question concerning knowledge, how is human knowledge possible? And he said, well, there have to be certain conditions if we look at it from the point of view of the subject of experience. So he, he developed his philosophy from that. But he came up with the idea of these transcendental objects, which are abstract objects that must exist in order for cognition to be possible. And uh, so that gave me the idea of maybe if I could, you know, we always talk about um, spirituality as the other or something undefinable, but maybe there's, if we could flesh out some of these transcendental objects that might be purely imaginary, but it doesn't matter because we have to posit something that makes other things possible. It's the way we, way we do things. And, um, so I came, I decided to explore the idea of transcendental objects. And um, uh, of course, that's not going to translate into a philosophy, so I call them rogue objects. And uh, that translates into poetry as uh, something that has a poetic form, but um, that is actually an artifact that just sort of kind of radiates meaning and you can take whatever you want from it. It doesn't have a meaning. And this is a very kind of modernist approach, um, which I developed over many years. And I'm only just coming to the point now where this stuff's starting to surface and I can put some shape around it. And I spent about six months last year uh, trying to develop a series of poems. Uh, I think I wrote about five series and most of them got nowhere because they're, they're really in the world of inner sense. So it's very hard to put objects around them and get a reaction unless you've been in that space and um then uh but one of them was successful which was really good which means for me i kind of broken through that representational layer that other people can understand my view of what's going on from another place that i think is real maybe purely imaginary but it's poetry so who cares well, I was going to say that, you know, we, we run other competitions out of Westwards and and the one that we do regularly, or just on our second one, actually, um, Living Stories competition, which is across Western Sydney and for various age groups and for poetry and for prose. Uh, but we provide a prompt and we try very hard to make that prompt not too obvious. We try, if, say, for example, last year in the middle of lockdown, it was the whole world at home, which which could have been, you know, we're all watching the whole world happen through our TV or everyone is at home or whatever. And it was quite, it was, it was a community, it's a community competition. So we're kind of trying not to be too prescriptive, but also not to be too, you know, out there. And this year it was the only way is, which is deliberately, and people, kids would, kids would say to me at workshops, oh, so what do we have to write about? Well, that, we're not telling you that we're telling you, but this is a next, this is a step beyond that, isn't it? They're saying, just write a poem about, something indefinable so i mean would is that a challenge in its own way and I, you can each answer this and we'll, we'll come to you in a moment simone but um is that a challenge in its own way being given something that is so open-ended don't, I don't see it as any more of a challenge than ever writing another poem oh really well they say you've got to know what write write what you know about so but you're, you're, not, you're writing about something that you don't know about because by its very nature it's unknowable isn't it no, no, no. Well, you, you're treating it as a you're treating it as a transcendental space out there. The transcendental space is not out there. It's in here. Mm -hmm. You're writing from a place that you've been, and you're trying to describe it, right? Either successfully or not. That's different. You're also trying to not just describe it, but to understand it through describing it. Both, yeah. Oh, I. Uh, I'll just say one thing. I, I, mine, uh, this philosophy and poetry is very difficult. My method is to is based on abstraction, where you you, you use uh, an abstract concept, and uh, which is transcendental by its nature because it's not a concrete, right? It doesn't exist only in your heads or somewhere, and you you uh, that's philosophers talk about that stuff and it's very boring but how you turn it into poetry is to look at that space try and understand the energy in it and turn it into an image or a story and it comes through that way so you're describing something very abstract but you've created an instantiation of it 
Or would you like to... She can make it real. Okay. Or would you like to uh, attempt to do that by reading rogue objects for us? Okay. Uh, rogue objects. There's three. The key, the galaxy, and God in, in this series, but it's an extended series. The key. The absence of its serrated blade in darkness of the waiting lock turns presence into pure idea as we behold aspects of a world dawning in the mind, lit from the other side of its empty form. But it avoids our grasp, slipping between images that never fit as suddenly a piano strides its train of strange and weary blues into the room and you sense my lyric break and fall from thin air to bebop riff in oblique tunes too abstract to sound the om whirling tumblers in a sight a bunch of keys jangling from the ring the galaxy in our galaxy of selves, each world opens in the moment to vanish as we notice it. But the rush slows to speed of light, lazing its feline head in tree shadows, preening dappled fur with numberless tongues, each blurred into strange familiars we would snare by geometry to frame the stream of inner sense beheld of surfaces of ourselves splintered in the slivers of grief, hope, or memory as appearances. I sit illumined in shadows as they multiply their forms, like sadhus on a feast day with their begging bowls of moonlight. God. The universe is made from body parts of broken angels. Only the naked heart can see. Broken for our maker of chaos, who, grandchild with Lego box, lets rip Armageddon of tumbling pointy blocks, a greyhound and squabbling infants. The list longer than the history of names. But outside my window, a few leaves ruffle their feathers. A singular twig reaching its green taper high above the copse, upward into twilight, Ignites star sequence sky. Anecdote for the sun, which through our longest night will reimagine light. Thank you so much for reading that. I, I love that. Um, what, was, what was that line? Oh, the begging bowls of moonlight. That's a cracker. That's a terrific line. Thank you so much for reading that, Gershon. We appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Um, Simone, let's come to you. So, what was your. What was it that kicked this whole thing off for you with your poem, Surfing Again? Yeah, so like the others, I didn't write the poem for Entry to the Blake either. Um, I wrote it um, last year during a masterclass with Felicity Plunkett where we had to write a poem every week, um, which is a much bigger, uh, you know, larger turnaround than <laughs> I usually um, write. Um, so, I was sort of like just panning, you know, sifting through my life for kind of moments or experiences that had that sort of potency that's often um, the inspiration for a poem for me. Um, and I thought of writing a poem about my second cousin uh, who died after a long struggle with multiple sclerosis. And he died almost 10 years ago, so it was quite a long time ago. Um, and this poem is an elegy for him um, he was a surfer before he, his MS symptoms got too severe. And the poem describes the paddle out ceremony that his surfer friends um, performed for him after his death as a part of his wake ceremony. And I was watching it from the shore. And so I'm, the poem sort of um, is my sort of reflections and thoughts as I watch this ceremony from the shore. And it's also a reflection on my relationship with my second cousin as well. The poem, when you look at it on the page, is is constructed as a block poem. I'm a, I'm a big fan of block mm -hmm. poems. I'm not even sure why. I just I just like the way they they run on. 
what was the yeah. from a, from a um, from a structural point of view and from the the creative decisions that you make as a poet? What what uh, what led you to make this into a block poem? For so any, anyone mm. who's not listening, it it's not always one sentence that runs on, but it certainly is all put together in one big big paragraph with no breaks for lines so it does have a slightly different visual kind of um component to it so what was, was there a particular decision that led to you to make this a block poem yeah um well to begin with it wasn't actually to begin with it was lineated it was in line organized into lines and stanzas like a more typical poem um but and i tried a few different forms but I just couldn't decide on something and it just didn't feel right um I just couldn't work out where to to break my lines and where to break the stanzas and it was actually just before I submitted it to the Blake that I thought ah maybe I'm going to try it as a prose poem I just put it all into one um paragraph and it just seemed to work um better than you know it seemed to suit the content um and the style of the poem better than the other forms that I tried I think some of the reasons for that are that, um, you know, this, this poem definitely is a poem. It's not a piece of prose, mm. but it does have elements of storytelling. You know, there's characters, there's a scene, there's some action there in terms of the ceremony. So I think prose poems can uh, suit those kind of um, poems that have that kind of storytelling feel, although they do resist, you know, the urge to, to complete the narrative as, as you would in, in prose. Um, and I think there's also a some fluidity, almost sort of a bit paradoxical, because if you look at a prose poem, it does look a bit blocky and, you know, it doesn't necessarily look like something fluid. But I think there's a fluidity to the reading experience of a, of a prose poem, um, you know, being able to flow from line to line. Um, sometimes I think, lineating poems and, and breaking the lines does kind of break the flow a bit. Um, and I think that also suited this poem, which is about, you know, quite fluid things. It's about the ocean. It's about disintegration of the body. It's about cycles of life and death. So, yeah, I think that fluidity um, suited it well as well. I also kind of feel like from a, a reader's perspective, when I look at one of these poems, it's structured in this way with very little white space. You often with a with a lot of blank verse, for example, you'll have, you'll have a lot of white space and there is a certain freedom and, and lilt to it, if you like, for one of a better, better term. Whereas this feels to me like a more claustrophobic, I don't mean that in a bad way, but a, a slight, I come into it with a slightly more expect, more expectation that I'm going to find myself encapsulated in this moment that I can't escape from, which I don't know if that mm. in any way reflects the what it must have been like to stand on the beach and watch this. It would have been all encompassing in that moment rather than what was happening outside the cocoon of that experience. So I don't know whether that's me just projecting something, but that's certainly how it felt to me when I read it. Yeah, no, I think that, that, that's the case for sure. It's quite a dense poem as well. So and Probably so you suit. double down on density by making it visually. Yeah, well, why not? <laughs> would you like to read, would you like to read it for us? The winning the winning poem from this year's Blake, title "Surfing sure. Again." I'd love to. Thank you. Surfing again for Mark. The sea calms and the surfers form a circle in the water under the late morning sun. Pat holds the Tupperware the calcium carbonate tailings of you. He tells your myth, fearless traveler before lonely planet, walking the desert palace of Leh, flinging the train doors open to the Nagshampa air and flowered corpses of Varanasi. Enjoy my friend, I imagine him saying, this next destination, this last opening of light. I'm stranded on the tide line, toes furling and unfurling in foam. My stories are smaller. Human seeds crushed in a mortar, curry passed between us in your succulent garden, and how, as I pushed you in your chair towards the sea to watch a rising swell, your creased face calmed. Now the red box that holds you trembles. 
The surfers turn and find the sea and ride the break in one bronze line. And I see how the sea makes all bodies one. Pat pulls off the lid and all the pieces of you, the punchlines of your jokes, your love of Marquez, marijuana and strong women return, meet their final belonging in salt water. Mm. Yeah, that's undeniably a poem, and and what I what I really love about that is this, oh, there's so much so much to unpack, isn't there? But the idea of well, exactly what we're talking about when what happens beyond, you know, when you when this life ends, what happens beyond, and the people left behind, and it's, it's there's that I can't remember the name of the poem. But there's a poem about that somebody wrote about their dog walk um, when their dog dies, and they imagine them. Um, trotting off down the the driveway without a backward glance, and it's this moment. It's you know for me as, as I think we're all probably pet lovers, but that they're going on their journey and and they're on their own now, and you kind of are sitting back and watching that, but also asking, are they going somewhere safe? Are they going somewhere better? Somewhere different? Mm-hmm. Is it even if it is nothing, they go and live on with this um, this amazing community of surfers that because. Sorry, I'm going on a bit, but I can sort of imagine <laughs> these surfers taking Mark when he was alive out into the surf and holding him in the waves as well. It felt to me like a very much a celebration of how they felt about him as a as a living person as well as somebody who no longer was. And um, I think it's a, it's a really beautiful poem. I think it's, it's lovely. I don't know if anyone else had any comments to make about uh, anyone's work today because we're going to wrap up in a tick, but did anyone um, have any feedback or anything uh, they'd like to say? Oh, they're both incredible, but I especially like um, I like how Simone, um, you know, steps back from it and 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 is watching from the shore. I think that for me is what, um, um, yeah, makes that poem so emotional for me. Is that distance? You know, she's not right in the middle of it, but she's she's. Yeah, she's watching what happens from a distance. And in a way that links with mine, I think, at the end, you know, of the poem, because that, you know, it kind of broadens out, it it gets brought, it, it pulls back. So the people are looking at sort of the impermanence of of that writing in the sky. And I, yeah, I feel like there's a there's something connected there between those poems. Reminds me very much of that Paul Kelly song, Deeper Water, where it talks about, you know where i'm going next i'm going alone and it's uh, sort of but maybe it's the waves that also made me think of that poem i don't know that song gershon have you got anything you'd like to say not necessarily about that poem but just generally about uh, what we've discussed uh no i just think it's really uh, this kind of competition is very important it's a great initiative because um i think uh poets need to be more than just you know interrogators of the of the zeitgeist you know uh, but try to go deeper and uh, and uh, and project something positive, you know, uh, in terms of resilience and hope and all those things, which are not we call them spiritual, but they're, they're existential. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd probably go along with that because I'm still not sure that anyone's ever defined what spiritual really means, apart from saying it's that stuff we can't define. Um, that's maybe that's just a skeptic in me. I don't know. So what, what, well, you know, the, the Indian guru was, would be telling you, my son, you know, you were trying to understand the orange by describing it rather than eating it. <laughs> well, I, 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 that's I, what he would say. I didn't say that. No, I was say, I'd, I'd have a couple of rebuttals <laughs> for your Indian guru as well. We won't get into all that right now. That's, that's another conversation. Isn't it? What have you each learnt about yourself or about your poetic practice, if anything, from this process of having to engage about specifically about spirituality rather than just having having it as a byproduct of what you explore in your poetry? Well, I think it's um, given me confidence to keep writing poetry. Um, that's the, you know that's the main thing that's come out of it for me and to um, yeah just to spend to d- just spend more time um, just sitting with things and um, because it wasn't you know it wasn't written for the prize it was written 
um, because I wanted to go, you know, deep into, um, you know, memories that I had, but also engaging, um, yeah, engaging with concepts that were difficult for me um, and wondering why I grieve for certain things and why I don't grieve for others. Um, because yeah, I, I think, think yeah, the prize has been fantastic in terms of, um, and also opening up all this other work for me as well. You know, I really enjoyed reading everybody else's. I mean, I, I don't write a lot of poetry. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a prose writer. Um, but f it seems to me that prose writing tends to be more about, it. you tend to spend, it's not more about this, but you spend tend to spend more creative energy working out what happens than why it happens than you do in poetry, perhaps. I don't know, is that a fair kind of summation? Um, not the way I write. I think what I've sort of realised is that my most of my novels are basically poetry and I didn't really know that. <laughs> so I think I'm just essentially a poet in whatever I write, but I hadn't kind of, you know, defined, hadn't defined it that way. So everything um, that I write um, is fragmentary and, um, and not plot driven, but it comes it's sort of like something that's been smashed up, you know, in my last novel, obviously a mirror um, that's been sort of smashed. And then by the end, it's coming back together in, in, in pieces to have a bigger picture. So um, no, for me, the pleasure is, which is the same with poetry now is yeah. Putting things back together in some way. Mm. Um, yeah. So the structure, I never know. I'm, I'm not interested in knowing what happens before, before the end of the novel. Yeah, I like Kirsten. Um, it's given me so much more confidence in my writing, in my voice. Um, but also, you know, even though I didn't write the poem for the prize specifically, um, all the thinking that I've done since then, you know, we, when we were shortlisted and reading everyone else's poems, all the, all the thinking about, you know, what is spirituality has been really beneficial and, and is poetry inherently spiritual? All these questions that, you know, if you've only got a small amount of time like I do to write, usually I just focus on just the, the kind of practical, the writing part, not necessarily the theoretical questions, the sort of deeper existential questions that underlie our practice. So that's been a really, really beneficial aspect of this whole thing for me. Um, and just tying back to a previous question as well about um, other people's, you know, the other shortlisted candidates and, and you know, Kirsten and Gershon's poems. I just, yeah, they're all just incredible. Um, and it was, it's been such a pleasure to read them and to really engage with their work. Um, and a pleasure to be in conversation with them today, both very, you know, fascinating people. So I'm really looking forward to following, um, to following your work into the future. Well, I mean, at some point, uh, we'll probably follow tradition at Simone and ask you to be judged for next year. So you might get your opportunity to read a lot more poems about <laughs> spirituality by other people. Yeah. We'll have, <laughs> we'll have that conversation at a different time. But <laughs> um, Gershon, what about you? Have you yeah, I think it's, the process has been great because uh, you're asking about the effect of uh, uh, highly commended uh, or the process of winning the prize. Uh, yeah, well, certainly the confidence uh, that you've got a, an audience, and that's very important. And uh, but also the opportunity to read other people's work on a similar subject, because uh, everybody comes comes it from their own space. And sometimes, you know, uh, like in Kirsten's poem, you know, she's talking about a shopping centre in the CBD in Melbourne CBD, and I'm thinking of Myers, you know, and they're so far away from spirituality. But that's not the way the spirituality is. It's in the people who are in the building. And that's what she has found, you know, from reading that idea from the point of view of, uh, you know, uh, a teenage, I suppose, a teenage girl in, the, in, in that shop. And uh, that is very interesting because that, you know, again, I'll shoot off into some speculative stuff, but like... Uh, uh, Andy Warhol, you know, who created Marilyn Monroe as an icon. You know, now that's ironic because he's turned a religious icon into a consumer brand, but or the other way around. But you, you, Kirsten, have done it the other way around and made something spiritual out of a retail shop, which is that, that well, that's a very saintly thing to do. <laughs> so interesting you bring up Marilyn because Marilyn is just Marilyn was the other icon, you know, in that yeah. in that shop. 
Oh, right. Yeah. Marilyn was it, you know, and that's why she's got the billowing skirts in that right part of it that's really interesting you picked up on that well, I, I want to ask you about your take on the kim kardashian wearing the borrowing the marilyn monroe, monroe dress i suspect the answer may not be uh terribly glowing but um well, well i would have worn it but it wouldn't go with my shoes <laughs> exactly right and you might a lot about that I think. Listen, i don't know if you know this but um lego of course is doing a lot of work now bringing out kits for grown-ups and one of them is the artistic kit and it's a basically the big uh marilyn monroe not a triptych it's whatever four a triptych of four is um quartet of things but it's all created with lego and you buy the kit and you put it together and then you mount it on your wall so go and check out lego uh, better write that down. yeah yeah it's about 350 dollars. it's not cheap but it will take some my wife's in the process of making the um the vespa the it's about this big and it's a little pale blue um, Vespa motorbike and she's having a lovely time doing that. It's, it's well, Gershon has the reference to um, Lego, don't you? Armageddon. No, oh, yeah, yeah, well, that's well, that was a true story because in my little study, my my grandchildren come in and and turn my Kantian haven into a nightmare. So that was a true story. And the Greyhound is in the room as well, <laughs> in, in a bedroom size room. Yeah, so that happened. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today about your work. There's so much more we could discuss, of course, but uh, congratulations once again to each of you. Um, I don't think we've answered the question about what's out there or what's beyond or what's within. That's still all up for grabs, but hey, you know, we don't want to be able to understand everything, do we? No, no. Probably not. We just just open, up window, open a few windows. That's all we know what's going to do. Thanks so much, everyone. We really appreciate your time.